Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Listening to The Mod Pod, a companion podcast to modern optometry, the go to publication for full scope ODs navigating the evolution of our profession. I'm your host, Cecilia Kenning. Join me every month to hear me speak with authors from each issue. We'll talk about their articles, get more in depth about particular points of interest, discuss how to apply tips and suggestions in real life practice, and more. Welcome back to The Mod Pod. I'm your host, Cecilia Ketting, coming to you from Denver, Colorado. And today I am joined by Dr. Bryce St. Clair, who is an instructor and optometry resident director in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute in John Hopkins School of Medicine. Mouthful, love this. Um, and he has an article in Modern Optometry on Cultural Compass, Navigating Patient Care Across Diverse Communities. Hi, welcome to the Mod Pod. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, and so for both myself and the audience, would you mind giving us a little background on who you are and what it's like for you in practice at Wilmer Eye Institute? Yeah, so my name is Bryce St. Clair. Um, I am a clinical instructor uh, at Johns Hopkins and uh, the current residency director. Um, my day-to-day uh, -day activities are basically uh, comprehensive eye care, medical eye care, primarily um, at the downtown office, as well as in a satellite office in what's called Green Spring Station. Um, I'm with the optometry residency program. I'm one of the directors there. Um, and so I have the resident one day a week, and I also have Johns Hopkins pre-optometry and pre-ophthalmology students that I'm with, um, as well as uh, first-year ophthalmology residents. And um, it's a, a basically a medical eye group um, at Hopkins. The way it works is anyone who wants to come and see a specialist, they usually have to be seen uh, as by a, a comprehensive optometrist or an op a comprehensive ophthalmologist first to see if it needs to go to a surgical subspecialist so that the surgeons stay in surgery. So I was hired to kind of feed surgeons uh, worthy surgeries. And if um, patients come in and they say, oh, I need a neuro-ophthalmologist because I have a case of optic neuritis, then I kind of explain to them, you know, you could see a neuro-ophthalmologist or that could be handled by, you know, one of our optometrists here, um, one of our comprehensive ophthalmologists. Uh, so it kind of helps streamline the system a little bit more. So I love what I do. It's a lot of uh, heavy uh, medical eye care and a lot of collaborating with interdisciplinary professions. Yeah, that's uh, very similar to how we function at the University of Colorado. So completely get it. Um, yeah, and they keep, sounds like they keep you busy, which is wonderful. Lots of, lots of teaching and passing on all of this great knowledge that you've amassed. So your article, um, I was reading through it before we had, you know, to come up with the questions for us to have this discussion and it was really thoughtful and I really appreciate it. Um, recognizing that different religions and cultures may actually yield completely different medical understanding as well as decision-making for those patients is, is one of those things I don't think we always keep in the back of our mind, but, but shouldn't. It depends on where we live, right? You're in Baltimore where you've got kind of a, a more uh, diverse patient profile um, as I am here in Colorado, uh, but depending on where we're at, we may not. Um, and so that is part of their comfort levels when it comes to healthcare uh, and their background on how decisions are made within their family unit. 
How do you suggest that our optometrists, our listeners, navigate asking the patients what their cultural or religion is without coming off as insensitive or making them feel singled out or that this is something that they should be, I don't know, even ashamed of, right? Yeah. So I think it's really first to, it's really important first to acknowledge or kind of, um, uh, understand where the patient's coming from. So for many patients, just getting to the doctor might be a novel thing. Uh, they might be reluctant or untrustworthy of medical providers in the past, or they might not have had access to eye care in the past. So one of the first things I like to say is like to establish some sort of trust or rapport with the patient um, so that they know they can trust me with making medical decisions. And then um, if you can, I think over time, you end up gaining more and you end up gaining more knowledge about different cultures. So you know kind of how to proceed. So um, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like uh, if you know a patient uh, is from maybe a, a third world country or a developing nation, lower middle income country, they might not have had, a ha- had access to surgery. So they might be more prone for an, a more immediate result instead of having prolonged treatment to care. Likewise, if they're visiting, if they're doing medical tourism, let's say they're from you know Jamaica or somewhere uh, in the Caribbean or South America, and they're here for a, um, a couple weeks of a time or a month of a time um, to visit family members or friends or to get procedures done, you know, starting a monoclonal medication might be beneficial, but you know, actually maybe doing an SLT or other type of um, procedures or surgeries might be more beneficial for them because they can't do that continuity of care back in their home country. So it all just depends, and, and I think you eventually gain that insight after more experience. And you can draw on those experiences to kind of relate to uh, patients in the future. So it's kind of like a snowball effect. Yeah, I would agree. And that's, and that's kind of been my experience over the years is eventually I start to feel more comfortable um, or recognizing the signs or something that somebody may say. um, And and a very easy one is when you need a translator um, to recognize. And and we do at the University of Colorado, we have a lot. um, I think they looked at it in 150 different languages that were translated last year. That's that's enormous, right? Um, But that's the signal usually to me to say, hey, uh, where are you from? What? Tell me about yourself, right? And show some kind of interest. And usually I, I love to travel, so I tend to find it very interesting. So um, do you suggest, are there any good resources for optometrists and other people, uh, to become more familiar with the different religions or cultures if they don't maybe feel as comfortable as you or I asking the patient? Yeah. So I, I would say that, uh, kind of going out of your way to educate yourself on, um, various religious or cultural practices is always beneficial. So if I have a patient who comes in, um, like for example, I had a couple patients who came in um, when I was living in Ohio who were from Somalia. And I uh, was kind of confused because I'd put letters up on the board and um, I would say, okay, can you can you tell me these letters? And um, then I, the patient would be like, oh, they kind of stumbled at first and was like, oh, I, I can't, I can't read that. And I was like, oh, okay, no worries, we'll do, we'll do numbers. And then I was able to get some numbers to try and to do the exam. And then I kind of delved into the question. I was like, why couldn't, because I had probably two patients um, back to back who had this similar um, uh, issue. And I kind of delved in like, like Somalia and literacy. And um, I found out that Somalia had gone through a very uh, drastic alphabet change. You know, back in the 70s, Somalia got like an English character alphabet. And I think it was upwards of 80% of Somalis are um, illiterate um, because a lot of them weren't able to get access to the education and were unable to uh, learn the quote unquote new alphabet that was imposed in the 70s. So it's it's still a prevalent thing that exists. But me knowing that if I have a Somali patient, I might say nowadays, 
hey, um, uh, would you feel comfortable, you know, reading English letters or do you, would you prefer numbers? Do you prefer like a tumbling E? You know, just digging up or posing those questions of why was this something that I encountered or, um, you know, educating yourself, going out of your way uh, to, to better understand a comprehensive view of the patient care aspect really can make a, a meaningful difference in that patient. I do the same thing with patients of low socioeconomic status. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but here in 2024, I've had two patients this year already. It's only um, February right now, but I've had two patients already who have told me that um, they've always struggled with reading or they always struggled with um, with recognizing letters. So I know that I've made a note in that system that, hey, that patient struggles with literacy. And so when that patient comes in to see me, I'll pull out a pen and paper or I'll say, hey, just write down or air sign what you think that letter is up there. And the guy will draw like a stick and three lines. I'll go, okay, he knows that's an E. Instead of giving a whole row of letters, I might isolate a single letter for that patient. So there's ways of getting around it, but it's one of those things where you um, adapting to the patient aspect and really listening to the patient and making notes accordingly can really change that outcome. And that patient said he won't go anywhere else for eye care because he he loves how you know insightful and how... Um, you know, considerate I am with my clinical practice. A little consideration goes a long way. And you kind of bopped right into where I wanted to go, which was, you know, literacy. And we don't think about it as being something that's a problem in 2024, but it really is. I mean, depending on the community, um, you maybe because of education, um, they may also be because of immigration, um, just different people coming from different backgrounds. And, and, what suggestions you you were great at suggestions for in the room, but what about before they even get to the room when they're trying to fill out all that paperwork? I know I've had my staff, I've had some amazing staff in the past, and a lot of them will just go sit down with the patient. Have you found any other way to rec- you know recognize it or kind of move around that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, at least at Hopkins, we have resources available where we can have people who will read forms for them. So if a patient says, hey, listen, I'm, I can't really see. And those people are available regardless because a lot of our patients have low vision. So they'll have need help to, to get through paperwork regardless. Um, so there are people who can read forms w- for them um, and they can make things larger print. We can send them digital copies so they can use their um, uh, accessible devices to kind of interpret things or use use forms differently. Um, but uh, I think another thing that kind of branching off of that is talking about health literacy. Um, I have tons of analogies that I use in clinic, maybe use them too. Um, one of them that I love is um, talking about uh, like Fuchs dystrophy and saying like, yeah, okay, imagine like your cornea is a sandwich and there's all these different layers to it. The bottom area of bread of your sandwich is really soggy. It's not really working really well. So we need to do a transplant. We're taking that bottom bread and putting new bread on the bottom of that sandwich. And just putting it in layman's terms is is extremely beneficial, especially when you're working with patients of uh, low socio- socioeconomic status or poor health literacy. Um, so yeah, accessibility features are key, um, but also using real life examples that, that don't blow the patient out of the water um, are a great way for the, to empower them about their eye care and uh, their treatments. I love that. Um, one of the other plays, one of the other things you kind of jump into with your with your article is making sure about creating a safe environment for LGBTQIA community. Which you know, I love that all of this socioeconomic um, are are just different backgrounds, whether it be religion or heritage or um, all of this. That, that we're talking more about this because it is so important. Um, in that LGBTQIA community, what are some easy steps that you feel we can make in our practice or elsewhere um, to implement in our clinics that would be help with fostering that 
with, with making a good, safe environment? That's a great question. I think that um, if you're part of an academic medical center or maybe a large practice, including something about diversity, equity, inclusion in a mission statement um, often will have people drawn to you. Um, even things like this is a safe space or whatever on your website. There was a um, one of my um, uh, colleagues, her name is Dr. Lauren Haverly, um, was talking about her practice and how she um, is, uh, she's a, a lesbian and she practices and she's unapologetic about like her her life and her wife and um, her the clinic that she runs. And one of the things that she has in her clinic is um, she says like, this is a safe space for members of the queer community. And there are people who drive, you know, hour, two hours to go to her clinic to see her so that they can bring their kids and, and say, hey, listen, we wanted a place where, you know, my kid would feel respected or my family would feel valued and respected. So small things like inclusion statements or like parts of that in your mission statement are beneficial. Um, adding pronouns obviously is great at the top of your um, paperwork so you know how to address people. And then if you want to change your clinic, um, I think a great way of starting is um, breaking down this, you know, gender binary of, of even frame selection. If you're in an optical shop, you know, break things down by brand. Say, you know, these are the um, like Oakley frames or these frames or, you know, Mershon frames instead of saying, oh, this is for the guys and this is for the girls. Because I, how many times have we seen patients who come in and go, oh my gosh, I love these glasses are amazing. And it's a, it's a, maybe it's a, a guy. And then the wife might pull out the frames and go, oh, those are Vogue, honey. And it's like, okay, well, if you, if you just kind of break it down and say, you know, these are this brand, pick out whatever yeah, you like. And stop. You're right. Yeah. Yes, don't absolutely. gender them. They're glasses. Who cares? They yeah, look good on them. Exactly. Just grab them. I have yeah. a small head. Sometimes I wear kids' glasses. Okay? Exactly. Well, you know, you know, you're going to chain me on that? No. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's yeah. simple things that people who maybe are non-binary or who, you know, want to explore different frame options don't have to worry about going to, quote unquote, one side of the room or not another. So there's just some simple solutions you can do to make your place feel a little more inclusive to the queer community. I know for me with being at the university, because I don't have um, control over some of those things, like what's on the intake, which we have those, which is great. Um, for me in the room, because I have no control, I wear pins. I have my pronouns and I also have a pin that says it's a safe space so that at least when people are talking with me, they have the ability to see that I'm putting that out there. And if they want to reciprocate and that makes them feel more comfortable, that's what I want. So. That's great. I always tell um, one of my colleagues uh, works in rural West Virginia, and she was like, "Hey, I really want to make sure I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a space for people people feel comfortable coming to me um, if they don't feel comfortable going to another uh, provider." And I told her, "You know, you can register through the centers of Medicare and Medicaid, um, and also through OutCare, O U T Care, to register as a queer friendly provider." Um, so. Um, it's kind of nice to be able to document that. So if people are looking for certain providers, they can find you more accessibly. So I, I yeah, that's another great way to, that's of, a really uh, good resource. I love that. So in our last minute here, um, I would love to ask you, what is your soapbox? What message or wisdom would you like to impart on our colleagues? Yes, I basically would say kindness costs you nothing. Um, our goal as primary eye care providers are to bring people into the threshold of um, the healthcare system and to uh, send them to the appropriate providers as needed and manage their, their conditions as needed. Um, so you want to make that, especially as primary eye care providers, a safe space for all people. And the more you can go out of your way to make that a, a nurturing, fostering safe space, it, it builds trust in the healthcare system and it builds trust in patient compliance um, and healthcare outcomes. So just, again, kindness costs you nothing. Educate yourself and try your best to um, foster a supportive community to all patients of all backgrounds. I love it. Well said. Um, thank you so much, uh, Bryce St. Clair, for joining me on the Mod Pod. 
uh, to talk about all of this, which is part of my own soapbox. Um, so I really appreciate it. And for those who want to know more and hear more from you, where can they find you on social media? You can find me. I'm, I'm LinkedIn is probably the best professional way to get a hold of me. And they can also email me um, at uh, it's my name, Bryce St. Clair, uh, all one word at gmail.com um, or on my Hopkins email, B-S-T-C-L-A-I-1 at J-H-U I'm happy to reach out. Uh, any of those forums is perfectly acceptable. Thank you so much again for joining me. And this has been Cecilia Ketting on The Mod Pod. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Cecilia Ketting coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and this is the Mod Pod. Welcome back. And this episode, we have Dr. Jackie Thies, and she is practicing at her own practice um, in Virginia Neurooptometry in Richmond, Virginia. And we're going to talk about her most recent article that was in Modern Optometry, Neurologic Dry Eye, Unraveling the Complex Connection Between Nerves and the Ocular Surface. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the Mod Pod. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's great to have you on. Um, I know some of uh, the people in our audience may actually follow you and I on Instagram and our travels. Uh, Lo and behold, surprise, surprise, we actually do work in clinic and see patients maybe not as much one week versus another, uh, such as we were talking about earlier, lots of patients today. Yeah. I think that's a misnomer. People just think we, all we do is travel. And I literally see patients at least three days a week. So, uh, if not more. Going on to that, you moved to Richmond, Virginia in the thick of the COVID pandemic to start on a very cool venture. Um, but maybe not perfectly timed, right. As many of the things for us that year, um, and it's not traditional venture. It's, it's very unique. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was originally working uh, in Northern California. So I was in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco. And I was working in a hospital-based system. And I was just looking for a change. And there was a infamous brain injury physical medicine doctor who was kind of a friend of a friend in California And I got on a call with him and he essentially said, you know, I love working with patients who have vision problems with brain injury or neurologic disorders. And when I described what I usually do with the patients, he was like, you know, no one does what you do in Virginia. If you move here, you know, I'll sublet you space and you can start your own practice. And he's one of those guys, his name's Nathan Zasler. You Google him and you're like, yep, well, that's where I'm going. Um, So I literally packed my bags and got in my car on March 1st, 2020 and drove across the country and then the pandemic hit. Um, But, you know, it was a, it was beauty in the making in the sense of you don't know how much detail and time it takes to actually create a private practice until you do it. So I, from the very ground up, started a private practice located in a transdisciplinary brain injury center. And so I have the luxury of working. We have physical medicine and rehabilitation, physical therapy, occupational therapy. uh, And it's just this wonderful mix of being able to have all these multidisciplinary providers in the same location. And I get to pick their brains every time I, you know, hit a roadblock. So it's been really fun. 
Well, I kind of feel like that about uh, having you on the Mod Pod because I get to pick your brain and I always love it because I learn something every single time. And now I get to share it with other people. So your article, you know me, it's literally a dream. Um, It's the intersection of my two loves, ocular surface disease and neuro. Um, And I think you're absolutely correct in your statement that this is not something that we initially think of as going together. Um, And we're becoming more familiar with NK, but most aren't aware of neuropathic corneal pain, which is something you're talking about in your article. What is it and how can it occur? Yeah. So unlike you, I don't like dry eye. <laughs> I, <laughs> and I started realizing years ago that I see a ton of dry eye. And I was frustrated because the dry eye that I see doesn't respond the way that dry eye does in a primary care clinic often, meaning the treatments I do don't work. And so essentially people are coming in and they're complaining, right? That my eyes burn, um, there's pain in my eyes, I have foreign body sensation. And you look at the eyes and the eyes look fine. Um, or they're doing everything right. And that's usually the case. I'm a referral center. So people have usually seen multiple optometrists or ophthalmologists before me. They've been on the steroids. They've been on artificial tears. They've been on everything you can think of for dry eye. And they're coming in still. And they're like, I still have pain. And so that is essentially um, where we start to look at, do you have neuropathic corneal pain at this point? And what that means is um, it can you can have it for multiple reasons, but essentially the pain itself isn't coming from the eye necessarily. It can be coming from some other part of the pain pathway. And so some reasons that you can have neuropathic corneal pain is actually persistent dry eye. So what can happen is, and this I was guilty of in the beginning of my career, of you see a patient, a little bit of dry eye, and you're like, I'm not going to tell them about it. Like, <laughs> they're fine. They didn't complain about it, so I'm not going to say anything. But the problem is if somebody has very low-level dry eye with some inflammation, persistently the inflammation will actually damage the nociceptors, which are the pain receptors on the neurons in the cornea, and the threshold for pain will go down. And so what will happen is these patients, the threshold for pain goes down. So then if you treat them later on, the problem is now their threshold is down. So when they get any little bit of dry eye, all of a sudden they're in pain again. And so that's going to be a huge issue for a lot of these patients. And then it's harder to treat. And then the other thing to think about is, you know, the eyes innervated by the trigeminal nerve and that pathway is very long. So it goes from the eye, it synapses in the neck, it goes up to the brain. So when people have neck injuries or brain injuries, they can have damage to the nerves in other areas of their face or in their head or their neck. And that's where the pain's coming from. So they're coming in complaining of eye pain, but the pain's actually coming from the neck or the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and again, I have learned much from you over the last couple of years and those are the patients that I see habitually. We were just talking about my patient today who is coming in um, and we're really trying to get back to understanding we're getting better, but why did we have this problem in the beginning that she was having all of this ocular pain, but no signs, right? Front surface, pristine. We're getting her better, but I want to make sure, am I dealing with the underlying problem? And as we were talking about, she has history of neck injury. So that's that's uh, that's where we're going tomorrow with her. <laughs> Yeah, I always like to say, oh, good, it's not my problem. And then I send it to the neck person in our practice. <laughs> yes, which is nice that you have that. Um, <laughs> what is another good indicator that the patient might be suffering from this? 
Yeah. So one of the things that we do in our practice is the Preparacane Challenge, which is a test I wish someone would have taught me in optometry school because yes, we, put talk to about this. we put Preparacane in every eye, right? Before we do a lot of testing, whether you're using fluoresce or you're doing it before you dilate. <clears throat> but Preparacane, right, is going to essentially numb any nociceptors on the front part of the eye. So if somebody is having peripheral pain or nociceptive pain, if I put Preparacane in and they're like, oh, my eye feels great. Um, then we know that that's where the pain is localized to. But if you put Preparacane in the eye and the patient's like, nah, I still feel foreign body sensation, burning, searing, hot pain from that eye. Well, you just literally neutralize all of the pain receptors in the eye. So that's not where the pain's coming from. So it's a nice way of being like, oh, your pain is centralized, um, which means that it doesn't matter what you throw at that eye. It's not going to get better with topical treatment. And you then have to think beyond the box a little bit about how are we going to treat centralized pain? So I know some people, and that I think help kind of that helps to kind of understand what it is and and what it is not, um, because I have had some people ask me, "Hey, is that a good option in place of corneal sensitivity testing?" But at the end, it's not. That's not what it's testing. It's testing something different. Yeah, and usually, right? So I always say there's a mismatch oftentimes when we have neurologic problems with the eye and dry eye. And so you're either going to have the patient who has a lot of signs of dry eye and no pain, and that's where the right corneal sensitivity, where you check corneal sensitivity and they're either, you know, partially neurotrophic or fully neurotrophic, or you have the patient who has a ton of signs and symptoms or no signs and symptoms and a ton of pain. And that patient is going to be the neuropathic patient. And the thing that blows your mind is that you can have both you can actually have a neurotrophic type cornea where you have reduced sensitivity, but you also have neuropathic pain. And those ones I think is where it's helpful to do both the um, esthesiometry or, you know, using floss essentially yes. yeah. to check for the cornea. Let's be honest. Where we have. Um, and then, but also checking with the prepare cane challenge because a patient can have both. You can have both types. That helps you kind of localize it too, right? Super. Well, if you see that they have both things, then it's like, well, now you really have to Think how, what is the stepwise process of treating somebody who has decreased sensitivity and yet increased pain? And I think what I'm finding over the years is that there's a lot more people with both. It's not just one or the other. It is really both. And when you clean up one, you're sitting there going, scratching your head going, why? Why am I still dealing with part of this problem? Didn't we fix it? And it's because at the beginning, it really wasn't just one problem. Or, right, one is in response to the other. So nerves in general, neural adapt. So the longer that you have pain in any part of your body, um, you can have either change in the referral patterns of the pain or you can have the pain desensitized because the point of pain is to tell the brain about the environment. And so if you're getting a constant stimulus and it's not a threat, the brain will kind of neural adapt. And so, but that's not good for the cornea. You don't want to neural adapt to the cornea and that's that neurotrophic part. So then the problem is, you, the beautiful, perfect dry eye person is going to treat the neurotrophic keratitis. And then all of a sudden the patient's going to have pain because the cause of the NK was actually persistent pain. And then over time it went away. And so that's the other thing to keep in mind is that you can have one emerge when you fix the other. And and it's not that you did anything wrong. It's just like, oh, this is actually what caused it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So you discuss secondary dry eye issues related to neurologic disorder and treatments uh, for that as well. In patients with TBI or post-concussive disorders, can you give us some pearls of what to expect in relation to things like you mentioned, sleep dysfunction, dysautonomia, stress, depression, anxiety? Yeah. So 
I think when I've talked to other people, I, I joke sometimes with, with you or with Walt Whitley of, I'm pretty sure I see more dry eye than you guys do. Um, and I, I joke with that, but it, the studies have actually shown that patients who have a history of brain injury or post-concussion actually have more dry eye than the general population. And um, part of that is just due to the neural regulation of blinking and tearing. Um, but the other thing is that when you've had a brain injury, you can have a lot of sequelae from that injury that also causes dry eye. And so a lot of patients post-injury don't sleep. Their sleep patterns are messed up or they get some type of pain disorder that makes it hard for them to sleep. And we know that just one night of sleep dysfunction can cause dry eye. And so if you're doing a treatment and they're not getting better, you need to scratch your head and think, well, why not? And so we refer for sleep clinics all the time. Oftentimes you can have sleep apnea. Then of course, then they get a, a CPAP that leaks and then they have more dry eye. You so create more of an issue. Go for the CPAP machine. Um, a lot of patients have dysautonomia, um, and so they're going to have brain fog or they're going to be chronically dehydrated. Um, and so you got to regulate, right, um, and make sure that they're, it all falls together. If we have dysautonomia, we know that the lacrimal gland is autonomically innervated. And so you're going to have decreased secretion of tears if you're not having appropriate regulation of your autonomic system. Is there a timeline um, that you should see this, like post-TBI or concussion? And like, as far as a timeline, as far as maybe resolution or an improvement, or when do we get concerned? Yeah. So normally for a concussion, I mean, brain injury, traumatic brain injury, moderate and severe are just different animals than a concussion, which is a mild traumatic brain injury. But we usually expect most mild traumatic brain injuries to be better within about four weeks. So if it's not better within four, and, and four weeks is actually the visual sequelae of, of concussion, most of the physical symptoms get better within the first one to two weeks. Um, and vision is one of the last things to get better. So I always say if their vision stuff is persisting um, beyond four weeks, that's when you want to refer for for kind of a center and to take a look. And when you ask, like, as far as some of the other things that can happen, um, we know that the longer that you aren't doing the things you enjoy, all right? So if you have a brain injury that gives you dizziness and nausea and you can't get in the car to go or you're light sensitive, so you can't go to the gym over time, you're going to get depressed and then you're going to get anxious that you're going to get symptoms where you go. So depression and anxiety in, in our chronic population is really large. And then the problem is some of the medications we use for depression and anxiety then cause dry eye. <laughs> so it's, yes. it just goes over and over exactly. and over again. Yeah. Um, and it just cycles on each other. So it's, it's fun to work in this area because you can really make a huge difference, but you also have to be a sleuth to figure out why their dry eye may be ebbing and flowing during their recovery. Because sometimes it's they were put on a new medication to treat some other thing that's going on, and that's what's now causing a problem. So what I just heard is um, pretty much my day. Dry eye clinic. <laughs> yes. Yes. Little did you know. So in the last moment that we have here, um, I want to ask, I'd love to hear what your current soapbox is. What is, what is your wisdom you'd like to impart upon our friends listening? Sure. So I have a lot of soapboxes, but I think the soapbox that most kind of resolves with this article is I get really frustrated when people kind of shrug their shoulders when they say, oh, well, dry eye signs and symptoms don't make sense. And, and they just think that's normal for dry eye. And Really where I get on my soapbox is if you understand the neurologic innervation of the cornea and the lacrimal gland in our blink reflex, the signs and symptoms actually make sense. And so if your signs and symptoms aren't matching up, you should think about an underlying neurologic disorder that might be causing some of the problem or nerve regulation that's part of the problem. And the other thing um, that I would say that's related to that is don't ignore dry eye in the early stages. A lot of the studies in corneal pain have shown 
that things work really well if you treat it early. But if you wait until they're severe, it is almost impossible. Like all of the studies show that pretty much nothing works once it's severe. So getting in there early, being proactive about dry eye management will save your career in the long run and it'll make patients so much better. And again, I taking that extra time to talk to the patient, even though it doesn't seem like a big problem in the long run will be huge for their management. I like your soapbox and I tailgate on it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining me on the Mod Pod. I really appreciate it. Um, and I know our audience does as well. I'm sure they got lots of pearls out of this. And for those who want to know more and hear more from you and where they can find you on social media, where can they find you? So my practice is Virginia Neurooptometry. And it's located at the Concussion Care Center of Virginia, and we have an amazing blog. So I always get people to go to the CCCV website because our blog is there, and each one of us takes a different month. Um, so it's a very ubiquitous kind of place for, for fun things and brain injury. And then we're also present in the same practice kind of locations on Instagram. So you can all find it all from our website. Well, again, thank you so much. And signing off, this is Cecilia Ketting from The Mod Pod. Mod Pod.